this is giving the game away an attempt to shine light on areas of the modern sporting world that aren't talked about that much. We had the idea to do a podcast and we originally just said to each other, right, let's interview some sports people about their mindset for approaching elite sport. But as that idea has grown and come on, we've realised that there is just so much to be encapsulated in the world of modern sport that we could talk about. And so each person we interview will try and reflect a different corner of that world. We've interviewed a whole range of athletes from football, cricket, rugby, basketball and more. But we've also tried to speak to people from within sport in other areas, such as broadcasters and agents and psychologists. And we hope that the interviews shine a light on areas of sport that you may not know that much about. We're chatting to Emily Diamond today. She's a 400 meter sprinter for Team GB. And although only 29, she's already had a hugely successful career, including becoming British champion. But Emily is also renowned as a relay runner and has had successes, including a silver medal at the World Championships, a gold medal at the European Championships, and perhaps most notably, she won the bronze as part of the Team GB side at Rio 2016. I personally think that relays are probably one of the most exciting events at an Olympics. They're always one of the events I look out for. So I'm looking forward to exploring the mindset of a relay sprinter and Olympian at the very top of her game. As well as her athletics career, Emily is really keen to inspire the next generation of athletes. Emily gives talks to schools and universities up and down the country. And the key message is that despite the bumps in the road that you may face, there is nothing stopping you from achieving what you want to go and do. It was really refreshing to hear an athlete be so honest about how some days she gets up and she doesn't fancy it. But it was so uplifting as well to hear that the ultimate goal of repeating her 2016 success is what carries her through these days. If you'd like to give any feedback on the interviews we're carrying out, please do not hesitate to leave a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts or send us a message on Instagram at Giving the Game Away. Thanks for finding time away from your busy pre-Tokyo Olympics training schedule, Emily, and coming on the podcast. We're really looking forward to hearing about your journey and delving into the mind of an elite sprinter and Olympic medalist. But if we could start at the beginning of your career, um, so throughout your childhood, you played numerous sports to a high standard. I think you played tennis, rounders, hockey. Do you think that all of those sports and playing all those sports benefited you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, sport was always a massive part of our family. Um, me and my brother always sort of each evening we would after school, we were doing a different sporting activity, whether, like you said, was tennis one night, it might have been rounders another night and then hockey on Fridays and all that sort of stuff. So it became sport just became a routine and like part of my life. And I just managed to carry that on. Um, throughout university it was just like even I know because that's a difficult age where people start to um, drop out of sport but for me because it had been a major part of my life from such a from primary school um, it wasn't ever really an option for me to just not do anything Um, and then I just gradually found athletics I think um, tennis was my main sport for probably about a decade most of my childhood if not all of my childhood and then I gradually sort of moved away from tennis and found athletics and just stuck with that over the years. Um, never necessarily dreamed of going to the Olympics with athletics, but just sort of took each year as it came. And um, as long as I was still enjoying it and, and running well, I just sort of went from there. But I think, I think my relay side of athletics 
being involved in team sports from a young age just definitely helps in that. And even non, like not the relay side of it, training in a group with eight or 10 or so athletes, you, because you have that sort of team aspect, you know it's not just like a one-on-one individual sport with just you and your coach. Um, so yeah, I think, I certainly don't think it was been, been detrimental to my sort of athletics career doing hockey when I was 14, so to speak. And so what age was that, that it became clear that athletics is the path that you wanted to go down? I think I was about year 10 or year 11 at school. Um, I wasn't really enjoying tennis as much anymore. And um, I was doing all right, sort of on random athletics competitions, whether that was into school or I was still a member of an athletics club. Um, so I just rock up to the odd athletics event in the summer and would do quite well having not done any training for it, apart from school, hockey or netball and all that sort of stuff. So I think when I stopped doing tennis, I was like, right, well, if I'm not doing tennis, what am I going to do instead? And just athletics was the obvious second choice, if you like. Um, so, yeah, it was like I said before, it wasn't an ever an option of just stopping tennis and doing nothing. So it was like, OK, I'm stopping tennis. What am I going to do instead? And that's where I went down the athletics route. And I guess it probably made sense for you to pursue athletics a little bit, because I think you had some family history in athletics. I think both your grandparents and your parents um, were athletes themselves and I think were your grandparents long jumpers is that right? Yeah so my gran on my mum's side was a long jumper and her husband so my granddad was a 200 meter sprinter sort of they were that was their main event and then my mum because they my grandparents met in athletics um, my mum then did athletics when she was younger and she did her event was long jump Um, and she did that up until university age and then so when I was leaving tennis and was moving into athletics long jump was kind of like the obvious starting point Um, and then I gradually moved to sprinting and then to 400s from that. I've I've heard you say as well before that um, one of the things you like so much about athletics is purely just the enjoyment that you got out of it and it came at a time when obviously you weren't enjoying tennis as much. When you're speaking to kids now would you say that just having pure enjoyment for the sport is one of the things that will carry you and allow you to progress as quickly as you did. Yeah, I think so. And I think the good thing, the thing I liked about athletics is even on training, like I'd go to the track, whether it be for training or race with uh, an aim, a target, a like challenge in front of me and I'd come back with an immediate result. Um, and I really liked that. I liked the fact that I could go to the track, do my very best and get a result at the end of the day that no one else has affected. And that's what I didn't like in tennis, the fact that some I could be wanting to do this, this and that, but the person on the other side of the net is affecting how I'm playing. Whereas in athletics, I liked the fact that I had my own lane, I could do my own training I could, and I could just run and no one else could really affect, affect that. Um, and that's one of the things I really enjoyed. And one of the things I mentioned to the kids when I speak in schools and stuff is because I did so many sports as a kid, I worked out which sports I enjoyed the most and then which sports I was the best at and was kind of lucky that athletics happened to be sort of both. But then naturally, I suppose, you enjoy the ones that you're good at as well because you're doing well at them. Um, But, yeah, yeah, I think I wouldn't be able to do it for so long if I wasn't enjoying it, I think. Yeah, and you you were doing so well at at athletics at a young age. Pretty much as soon as you took it up, you were being really successful. Um, But you were also being really successful away from athletics. I think you were a straight A student at A-level. So how did you manage to balance athletics with with your education? Was that difficult? 
Um, yeah, it wasn't easy. Um, I definitely had to make sacrifices. Um, but I like, I was quite driven in that I knew what I wanted. So I knew I wanted to do well in athletics, but I knew I wanted to do well in my A-levels as well. Um, and I wasn't the sort of kid, I guess, at school that was like keen to be going out every night on a Friday and weekend anyway. So I didn't feel like I was really missing out in that respect. Um, I do remember I had to leave my um, leavers dinner at school early because I had the World Junior Champs trials in Bedford the next day. So I couldn't spend all night at the leavers dinner because I had to, I was trying to qualify for World Junior Championships the next day. So there were things like that that I had to sacrifice to an extent. But um, the th- I think with like um, competitions and training and my schoolwork, I just had to be super organized and like I learned back then how to be organized and how to manage my time which is what I've sort of taken up with me now um and sort of almost any free time I had back then if I knew I was going to be like I've finished school at four I'd then drive straight to Bath Uni which is an hour away do a two-hour training session spend an hour driving back that's my evening gone so I wouldn't have time to do my homework and my revision in that evening so if I had free periods or whatever at school, I would spend that time doing the work rather than sort of sitting in the sixth form block chatting to my mates because I knew that I didn't have the evening to do the work. So I just had to manage my time and organise it and plan it out as much as I could. And that sport work balance must have been all right as well going to Loughborough because the people that we've spoken to, um, a few of the athletes who have gone through there just say the sporting culture there is incredible and obviously it's a great place to study but at the same time it's just so renowned for producing so many Olympians and top sports people yeah I think when I was looking around universities Loughborough just jumped out at me um and I ended up having Loughborough as my like first and second choice so for me I didn't want to go anywhere else apart from Loughborough and but I mean partly because of the athletics facilities but also the course I wanted to do the one in Loughborough was the best for how I wanted to uh, dictate my course so that's why I sort of went there and then was lucky that I think about a couple of months after I joined as a fresher, a coach, athletics coach came down from Scotland that ended up being almost the perfect coach for me. So we then, I moved to his group and created such a bond and a great that coach-athlete relationship that he, in such a critical time in my like athletics career and general career, um, that that sort of kept me on the path and sort of kept me progressing with that which made a big difference I think yeah I mean the coaching and facilities at Loughborough just seem unreal so it's, it's going to help isn't it um but I think whilst you're at Loughborough you actually got selected to be a reserve at the London 2012 Olympics and now even though you didn't actually get to race while there it must have been a great experience to be a part of all of that yeah I think that that 12 months in the lead up to the London Olympics was crazy because I wasn't even doing the event 12 months prior to that Olympics so I was a 200-meter runner and went to the World Student Games in China in July, August of 2011. And one of the girls got injured in the warm-up for the 4x4 relay in China. And because I had just done the 4x1 and was warmed up, they sort of roped me into the 4x4. And I ended up running a lot quicker than myself and anyone had expected me to. So we decided to do a few fours the following year, which was Olympic year came forth at Olympic trials, qualified for, um, selected as part of the squad for the the relay. And then all of a sudden I was at the Olympic Games, which I was never even really dreaming of 12 months before that. 
Um, so I was spent the whole time going around the Olympics in London, just not quite believing what was going on. Like I was all of a sudden in the Olympic Village. Um, the Duchess of Cambridge was visiting our uh, accommodation block one time. I was in the lift with Jess Ennis and all these sort of like superstars that you had dreamt of and just only ever seen on TV, TV before. And all of a sudden I was thrown into Team GB in that big team with all these incredible people. And you're wandering around the village and you're seeing everyone from all over the shot. And it was a very surreal moment. And I think I was never expecting to run. There was the possibility because if you're part of a squad of six or six to eight, I think, and they don't select the four that run until the day before the race. So there was always that possibility that you could, although I knew the odds were unlikely having been so new in the, in the event, um, that I was kind of there for the experience for ready for Rio four years later. Um, but because of that, even then you sort of think there was, I think someone, I don't know if I should admit this, but in the team thinking, oh, let's, let's go out tonight. Let's have a party in London. I'm thinking it's the, the heat of the Olympic Games tomorrow. It's like, okay, we might not run, but I can't go out. Just think like, what happens if three people get food poisoning tonight and I then end up can't running the Olympics because I had a night out in London the night before. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's one of those where I wasn't expecting to run, but you still have to prepare and mentally and physically prepare that that might happen. Um, but it was an incredible experience anyway. Do you think that experience of being in and around Team GB and being in the Olympic Village, do you think that ultimately helped you four years later when you went on to have such successful Olympics? Yeah, definitely. I think if I had gone to Rio, having that had been my first time, I would have been more overwhelmed with the whole experience. Whereas because I'd done that before um, and been in the village and been in that environment, I kind of knew what to expect. So it wasn't quite as overwhelmed as perhaps I would have been in London. Um, so yeah, definitely. And I think that's one thing that the BOA and British Athletics and the team try and think about to an extent that they try and think about who might be a big key member of the team in four years time and let's sort of like help them out now um, in order to prepare them for that time in sort of when it comes for or however long after. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea because I can imagine it is just very overwhelming. Like the the whole uh, build up to the games it must just be uh, just a crazy experience like we spoke to Alex Davis who was in at the Rio Olympics as well um, yeah. for the rugby sevens and he was just talking about the build up to the Olympics about how overwhelming the whole experience was but he was talking about like even getting the kit was just the, the most mad experience well that's the thing as well because there's so much to the Olympics that is away from what you see on the TV, which you would never know about unless you were experiencing it. And like when I tell people how we we get our kit, like people can't, so how like you don't just get a box delivered by DPD at your front door one day. Like I think kitting out took us about five or six hours and you have your personal shopper and you go around and you come home with three suitcases and a whole bag of free food and all this sort of stuff and people are just like what like how like how is this a thing and then we had because we were at the holding camp with the rugby sevens team and the swimmers beforehand um before we went into into Rio so that as well is something that you don't sort of see on tv in the facilities that we had there we had like exclusive use to this massive campus of anything you would ever need and then going into the village and you walk into your dormitory and there's 
your sort of two beds and it's very like basic dormitory but then on your bed you've got stacks and stacks of free stash and mobile phones I've got the Olympics engraved on the back of it and free headphones and there's just so much stuff that you just get that comes with the Olympics that sort of it's just added excitement to the fact that it's an Olympics. <laughs> Did it feel even sweeter as well because you had been injured the year before hadn't you? Mm. Yeah I was out for the whole of 2015 so I injured myself pretty badly I think I like popped my hamstring tendon in about three places in February 2015 and that took me out for the whole the whole year missed the whole summer I missed the world championships all that sort of stuff and changed my coach after that year um and and yeah and sort of tried to change a few things up and work on hamstring strength and all that sort of stuff to make sure that I was in a good place come 2016. And it seems like you were very ready when when the time came to race. Um, I think you've said in an interview before that when you did the heats for the individual, which is I think the first thing you did at the Rio Olympics, you actually were the least nervous you'd been for any race that year. Can you tell us a little bit why you weren't that nervous? I think as an an athlete you sort of the Olympics is the pinnacle of an athlete's career and you spend your life or I've spent four years after London 2012 dreaming of getting onto the track for in 2016 and I was so nervous for my first track race of 2016 which was a random meeting in Germany with one man and his dog watching I was 10 times more nervous for that than I was the final of the Olympic Games in the relay um, or the heat of my individual the first time I stood on the line by myself at an Olympics and I was more nervous at a random meeting in Germany with no one watching um, but I think because I had made it to the Olympics it was like that I'm, I'm here now I've made it whatever happens now obviously I want to still do well I don't want to just flop and it's okay because I've still made it to the Olympics but I think the pressure, the pressure's off. I knew what kind of shape I was in. I knew that I was running well. I knew my training had been going well. So it was kind of like all the pressure was off and I could just go out there and let my training and all that sort of stuff do the talking. Um, and I, I'd actually been up all night, I think two, 48 hours before that race with horrendous food poisoning. So because of that as well, I think, well, I made it onto the start line. Whatever happens now is just a bonus. As long as I don't make a fool of myself halfway around the track, then we're all good. Um, So, yeah, I think, yeah, it was just, I wanted to enjoy it rather than sort of spend my time worrying about it because it was an Olympic. And when you were actually on the podium and you got your medal, did it then hit you just how much you had achieved? Because that is the pinnacle of sprinting, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think... So we, we crossed the finish line, well, Christine crossed the finish line in the uh, bronze medal position. And I think, like, I watched the clip back a while ago, so I did a talk, and um, you can sort of see my face is just an utter shock. And then we do our lap of honour, and I actually see my mum in the crowds. She had run all the way down to the front of the, uh, the stand on my lap of honour. And I remember looking at her thinking, like, what the hell has just happened? Like, an Olympic... And I wanted to make um, the Olympic team, obviously, but I'd never dreamed of being winning, coming home with a medal. And I was just like, what on earth is happening? And then when we stood on the podium and they called our name and they put the medal around, it just hit me and I just bawled my eyes out. Um, and I just blubbed on the podium. 
um, to sort of think uh, I can't this is just insane like how on earth I'm I'm not just an Olympian and now I'm an Olympic medalist and like that's not supposed to happen <laughs> what is this uh, that's crazy and so did you generally not believe that you had a chance of winning like obviously the USA and Jamaica are, are known for being some of the best at relays did, did you not think that Team GB had a chance of getting in there the first time I thought we could get a medal here was after was after the heats um I think like obviously we wanted to do well and we won the European Championships about a month or so before and we won that in a world leading time um but we knew obviously at the time USA and Jamaica were very strong teams um, and hadn't done a lot of races beforehand. So there was always going to be um, essentially a fight for, I mean, anything can happen in a race, but they would need something bad to happen for America and Jamaica not to get a medal, essentially. So it was kind of like all these teams fighting for the bronze to an extent. Um, and I don't know if it was because I didn't want to get my hopes up or you never know what the situation is going to be like in terms of how people are racing or how, how people are doing. Um, I didn't want to sort of think a month out, two months of, oh, yeah, we can, we're going to get a medal here. We're going to come back with a medal. And the 4 by one girls had their final the day before us, and they got bronze. And I remember watching that thinking, imagine, like, they've now got an Olympic medal. Imagine if we could do that tomorrow. Like, like that would be the best thing ever. And I think after that, it was kind of like, yeah, we can do this. Because our Olympic final was about half 10, 10, 10.45-ish, I think, at night. So we had the whole day to mull over what potentially could happen and basically sit it out um, after watching the races the night before. And I think it was that day when I was like, yeah, we can, we could actually do something here. We could get the medal. And how did you actually celebrate? So, uh, didn't you go to Buckingham Palace at one point as well? Yeah, so we came, so we, I think it was a Saturday night, our final, but because the race, like the rest of Team GB had basically been were done because it was only the marathon the next day. And we, I think we had about a handful of, of athletes in the marathon, but not many athletes. I think it was our team and Mo that were potentially the only people competing on that Saturday night. So the rest of Team GB were basically going out on the Saturday because our final wasn't until 10.45, we didn't get back home to the village until about two o'clock in the morning, I think. So then had to get food and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then we had to be up again at half five to do a morning of media. So we missed the sort of fun, if you like, of the Saturday night, last day of the, of the Olympics. Um, because we were sort of busy I mean I wouldn't I'm not complaining I'd rather have a medal I think than a night out um in Rio but we missed that sort of celebrations but then when we came back to the UK there was the Team GB like celebration parade so there was one in Manchester and then there was one in London the following day and then I think those that won medals were then invited to to Buckingham Palace sort of that afternoon um where we got to meet the Queen, Prince Philip, Wills and Kate, Harry was there. I don't think, was there anything Meghan was on the scene by then? I think it was just Harry, Wills and, and Kate. Um, but then the Queen and Prince Philip. And yeah, that was that was a surreal experience. Managed to escape into the room next door and take a few selfies and a few photos. <laughs> <laughs> Did you actually chat to them at all? Did you chat to the Queen? Yeah, chatted to the Queen. I, I think I had got a photo sent out to us of chatting to the Queen and, and wow. Prince Philip. What do you even say to them? 
I can't, all I remember is that Prince Philip told us we were all mad, um, <laughs> which was quite, which was quite funny. But I think it was just worried that you would do something wrong or because yeah. people came around beforehand and were like, oh, um, this is the protocol. Like you, uh, this is what you address. Like you have to say ma'am and all this sort of stuff. And you, if she puts your hand, her hand out to shake your hand, then you can shake it. But if she doesn't, then you don't put your hand out to shake her hand. And so you're spending the whole time thinking, shit, what the hell do they just say? What am I going to do? Like, this is going to be a nightmare. I'm going to make a fool of myself in front of the queen. But <laughs> it was, yeah, it was so cool. And that goes back. That goes back again to what you were saying before about in the lead up to the Olympics. There's so many things that you don't think of that are involved in it. And then that's obviously the same when you come back. You know, meeting the Queen and going to Sports Personality of the Year and all those things must have felt so nice. Yeah, yeah. I think as well. But I think 2016, maybe it was a year or so before, was my first sort of time invite to Sports Personality, which again is a sort of bucket list list tick sort of thing um which was good fun to do and sort of meeting all these superstars again that you only see on the tv yeah um, it's surreal walking around and just seeing all these like world-class athletes just at the same event and you're yeah. part of that group that must be amazing yeah and then i just spend my whole time being starstruck like, oh, i really <laughs> want to get a photo of sense over there but i can't do that like, that's embarrassing. <laughs> and there's other people that just walk up and go straight in for a photo and there's me sort of carrying in the back <laughs> how soon after you'd come back are you were you back training because it's obviously a really relentless the relentless nature of sprinting you obviously have to be back training quite soon was it how long until you're back training again probably about three weeks and that that's one thing I actually really struggled with I think because you have this massive build-up to an Olympic Games and then all of a sudden that happens and then you come home, you get a little bit of a break. I think I had two weeks off, but I was working in a school at the time. So I had two weeks off and then the school started back on the 3rd of September or something. So I didn't almost feel like I had much of a, of a holiday and much sort of time to switch up. And then we started training again, third week of September, something like that. And then all of a sudden it's like, right, forget about the Olympics. Now I'm like, I've got to focus on the World Championships. That's next year. And that's something I really struggled with. And I think it took me, and you like hear about the Olympic blues and all that sort of stuff. And that's something I definitely experienced. And it took me probably a good few months to really get my mind onto like the world championships for the next year. And yeah. trying to focus on that. Yeah, I guess when you achieve something so incredible, it can sort of go one of two ways. Either you can be motivated to get it again because you've had a taste for it, or it can actually make you a bit demotivated because you, you've had it and you you maybe have less desire to go and pursue it again. So I can definitely see how it can go one of those two ways. Um, mm -hmm. But actually talking about your training, can you give us a little bit of an insight into what it's like? Because obviously being a sprinter, it's such fine margins. So you've got to be so strict to make sure that you get every possible millisecond. What, what's your training regime like and, and what's your diet like? So I train six days a week. Um, so Sunday's my day off and I'd have three track sessions. So I run on the track on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Yeah. I do two gym sessions and then I'll have like an aerobic sort of active recovery type of day as well. Um, but that will stay the same sort of through September all the way into the summer season. Um, but what I would do on those track days is what would vary. So I'd have like a speed day, say on the Monday where I'll do um, block work, technical stuff, 
60 meter sprints up to probably about 120 meters that sort of thing and then Wednesday tends to be about a big sort of lactic day um so at this sort of time of the or a couple of months ago it was sort of things like 10 400s off a minute or um sort of that aerobic sort of slogging not very exciting sort of little recovery kind of work and then the Friday session would be the speed endurance a bit more specific to 400 meter work um where the sort of pace goes up a bit at this time of year to have probably about three minutes in between runs but because you're running a little bit quicker than you would on the Wednesday this sort of extra couple of minutes recovery makes a big difference to what you can then do in your rep um and then as we get closer to races what I would be doing in those sessions would vary slightly but I would still have like my big session on the Wednesday and my speed session on the Monday and and all that sort of stuff and then because depending on what I'm doing in those sessions I have to think about what I'm eating the day before or after the sessions to make sure that I'm fueling myself the best like that I can before those sessions and to make sure that I can then get the most out of it because like like you said it's such fine margins that we have to like I could be a few tenths off a few tenths of a second off in my reps and that could be the difference between a good session and a bad session and you're talking three tenths of a second, which is nothing. Mm. Um, and that comes into racing as well. Um, and race prep work and teaching us, trying to work out and to teach yourself how to pace, I think is a big thing, especially in 400 meter running. You, like we are, my aim, if you like, would be to go through 200 meters in t- anything, say uh, 24.1 seconds. Like that point one is such a difference between 24.0 or 24.3. I go through in 24 or 23.9, 2.2 of a second quicker than I wanted, and that could ruin my whole race. Mm. So for us, like trying to work out and to try and be really good at pace judgment is almost just as crucial as doing the actual work itself. And those fine margins you're talking about obviously require training to be sustained at such a high level and obviously to do that you need a lot of motivation are there ever days where you're sort of not feeling it as much and on those days how do you then motivate yourself yeah definitely there are certainly days where I don't want to train or I'm finding training a lot harder like I said um, to my training partners today I did a session today that went quite well but two weeks ago I found so tough and was in was running slower and I'm like how can I be running quicker today but it feels so much easier than what I was doing two weeks ago and it's like you have your fluctuations and good days and bad days and some days where you just don't the last place you want to be is at the track but you just have to get it done and it helps if you've got a training group because you kind of bounce off each other and if some person is not feeling it then at least you've got somebody else there to sort of bounce off or get you sort of a little bit more up for the session and your coach is there so that helps because you don't want to you're not gonna sort of just not do a session when your coach is there but um I've done like a lot of my training over the years by myself like with no coach and with no um training partners or anything it's literally just myself on the track and that can be quite that can be really difficult because like if I did my set if I didn't go to the track today and I, I could still text my coach, like, yeah, these are the times I ran in my session. He wouldn't know that I wasn't at the track, but yet I would still go to the track and do my session. Um, and I think it's sort of reminding yourself of, like, why you're doing it. And it's thinking, like, 
you want to get to the Olympics, you want to get to the World Championships, and you can't do that if you're not training. So it's sort of reminding yourself of the end goal that you'd have. If I didn't have, like, to me, the sort of the people that would go out for a run at six o'clock in the morning before work, I think that's so much more credible than what I do because I would struggle to do that, I think, um, if I didn't have that sort of aim of, say, the World Championships or the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, it's quite easy for me just to get up and get to the track. <laughs> I think that's I think that's something that we've found from chatting to a lot of athletes. I think people sort of assume that athletes are sort of superhuman. They'll go in and their motivation levels will always be incredibly high. But there are obviously going to be days where you don't feel it. And then that brings in the importance of having um, resilience, which is something that you talk to kids about a lot, isn't it? And being mentally strong and mentally resilient, is that something that you feel is really important? Yeah, I think so. And there's so much in terms of sort of resilience um, that you like. we have to make sure we have sort of as athletes, whether it's dealing with training, dealing with setbacks, dealing with mental struggles or just not wanting to turn up to the track and sort of, I, th- I think even like in lockdown, when there were no races about, I think there was one session where I was in the gym and I was like, nah, like why, why am I doing this? Like, what is, like, why? And I think that was, like, one day when I really struggled. But other than that, it's kind of just, I think as well, because we're in such a routine with it, like, I know that I get up at this time, I have this for breakfast, I then need to do this and this, I leave the house at this time to get to training for this time. If I didn't do that, I would kind of be lost. So I think that helps as well, having that sort of routine and focus of the sort of end goal in sight. Which would you say is uh, more pressurised, the individual racing or relay racing? Because obviously with relays, you've, you've got the pressure of you don't want to let down your teammates. And you see it all the time in the Olympics, someone drops the baton and you just feel awful for them because they've just let down that, their whole team. Um, yeah. do, do you find that pressure? Do you worry about that? The only time I got that was the World Champs in London 2017. I got the baton on anchor leg in third place with the Polish girl right on my shoulder in fourth. And that was the first time I was like, shit, the worst that can happen here is I lose the medal for the team because we're so far away from, oh no, sorry, we were, we were in second and the Polish were in third just behind us. Um, and we were so far away from America unless they hurt themselves. So we weren't going to catch them. So I was like, the worst that I can do here is lose this silver medal for the team. And that's not fun. Um, people sort of say, like, what's your favourite or leg to be on? And fourth anchor leg is definitely a um, pressurised leg, especially when you when you get that. Because if you get the baton in, say, sit, the best you can do is put them into a medal position. Um, but you get the baton in a medal position and then the possibility of losing it um, is horrible. Like that happened to me in... Commonwealth Games in 2018 I was on anchor leg for the England team there I got the baton in third and the Nigerian girl overtook me in the 20 metres before the line and we ended up finishing fourth um so that's um not fun I, p- I prefer running the relay even though you've got potentially three people you could let down but then it's like it's more fun it's almost less pressurized because you've got those other people there to bounce off. Whereas the individual, it's just you on the track and all these people are just looking at you and these seven other girls. Um, that can be quite scary. Yeah, yeah. that 
that last leg just sounds so so stressful what 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 actually goes on in your head when you're running that last leg and can you tell if someone's creeping up behind you do you are you aware of their presence yeah normally you can um the only time i've never um been able to was on the anchor leg in the world champs in london because the crowd was so loud i couldn't even really hear myself breathing so normally you can hear someone on your shoulder breathing or you can hear their their spikes on the track but i couldn't even hear myself on that um on that leg because the crowd was so loud so when i got the baton um in that race and i knew the polish girl was on my shoulder and she's the type of athlete who finishes like a train so I sort of knew, I was like, right, I'm going to get out as hard as I could here to p- put a gap between us so that hopefully it's too much of a gap that she can then reel in in the home straight. Um, and then I was going around the top bend and the crowd was getting louder and I was thinking, shit, she's, she's coming up and like, this is it, this is the train that she's, she's reeling me in. So she's going to be coming up on my shoulder um, because the crowd's getting louder, but I couldn't hear her because of the crowd. Um, and so that was sort of just spent the whole, then the whole home straight just thinking, okay, I'm getting closer. She hasn't overtaken me yet. She hasn't overtaken me yet. Okay, I'm now only 20 metres from the line. Like maybe she's not going to overtake me, but I still had no idea how far away she was. And then looking back, I think she was about two metres behind in the end, despite putting about a 50 metre gap in between us in the first 200 metres. So that was like, Normally, you would be able to hear things like that. And some athletes actually, I think, look up to the screen uh, around the bend. But I, I think I tried to do that once and sort of completely lost my bearings that I've never done it again. Um, so, yeah, I just sort of run and just hope that I don't end up seeing someone that I shouldn't. I do think it's mad because I think people just assume that sprinters just completely just go into a zone and then you're just literally a full, a full sprint ahead. But you've got so much that you have to take into account whilst you're doing it. Yeah, and with the relay as well, you can't, you can run your own leg to an extent, but then you also, like, sometimes are like, okay, right, it's actually better if you, okay, you've got the baton in third, but you're just sat on the shoulder of this person. Just stay there because the person that you're then passing to in fourth actually prefers to chase rather than to be chased. So even though you could potentially overtake this person and go into second, the person, your teammate, would actually prefer to be the cha- to chase. So you think, right, I'm going to hold up here and pass in the baton just on their shoulder so then they can really attack Dan on their leg and that can be the better for the team. So you've got that to think about too. So some sprinters actually prefer receiving the baton, let's say, in fourth instead of... For four by four, potentially, yeah, yeah, potentially. Four by one is very much you get the baton and you're off, you go. And it's just flat out 100% the whole way. And the fastest team, the slickest handovers are the ones that get the medals. In four by four, it can be a lot more tactical. Um, And what's the mindset behind that? Why would you rather be chasing rather than being chased? I think it's just completely individual. So I don't know whether it's pressure or they prefer to, or whether it's because it's easier to sit on someone's shoulder and let them dictate the run and take the the wind or all that sort of stuff. And then it's like, right, well, this is easy. I don't have to think about here. I'm just running on your shoulder. And then with 60 inches to go, that's when I'm going to kick and I'm going to take you. Whereas it's almost, you spend more energy if you're the one in front leading the race to an extent um, that the person behind you is just chilling because they don't have to do any of the work. <laughs> um, whereas some people think, no, I prefer to be in the front because then I can just run my own race. So it just completely depends on 
on the people, but that's why we have to know our like teammates so well so that we know what they would prefer. Um, but yeah, some, sometimes it's just a case of, right, just run the fastest 400 meters you can and hope that the four of us can get a good time and that good time puts us in a middle position. But sometimes you just have to think a little bit more tactically than that. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to hear all the different things that go on in your head during a race. What about actually on the starting blocks? What goes through your head as you're waiting for the gun to go? Because you, you sometimes see um, athletes like as you're waiting before the race, like Usain Bolt, he's always joking around his knee as a way to sort of relax himself, whereas others are just completely in the zone and like very zen. How do you relax yourself and, and what is actually going through your head as you're on the starting block? I think for me, I'm just going over my race plan. Um, so normally my race plan doesn't change too much um, from race to race. It might be depending on if I'm looking for qualification or I'm in a, a particularly tough heat or an easy heat or that sort of stuff. My race plan might change slightly. But other than that, it was quite similar um the same from each race so I'd be going over that and then sort of like thinking about maybe what I'm trying to do in my first 20 meters coming out of the blocks all that sort of stuff but really there's not much you can think about when you're at that stage it's like sort of I guess if you're about to go in for an exam you might be thinking of one or two things but you can't suddenly think about the whole syllabus because you is too late for all of that so you're trying to like just focus on a few pointers that you might want to think are like the main things that you need to focus on for this race and trying to sort of like block out any other thing that could distract you, whether it be the crowd or the weather or your competitors or that sort of stuff. But I think it's just a case of just trying to calm yourself down and not get too overwhelmed with whatever situation you're in. And do you think that's something that as your career's gone on, you've learned to deal with better, you know, those nerves on the, on the starting line? Yeah, I think so. I think... Um, my first 400 outdoors um, back in 2016, I was an absolute mess on the start line and I didn't want to be there. I wanted to just cry. I probably did cry. Um, I hated it. And then I came away from that and I was like, right, what can I do now to put in place to make sure that I'm in a better place mentally when I'm on the start line? Because 400 metres aren't fun. Like they're daunting. It's a daunting event to do. Um, so if you're not prepared for that, like physically or mentally, um, you stand on the start line and think this is going to, this is going to hurt. This is, this will hurt. Um, whereas I'm much better at that now. I think one time where I wasn't is, and I, I let my individual in London in 2017 at the world champs, I let the, um, size of the stadium and the sort of situation that I was in overwhelm me and I didn't therefore perform as well as I could have um and I and I hadn't really done that before I hadn't really sort of focused more on the crowd or the environment or that sort of stuff and normally I'm just very much focused on what I have to do in my race and I wasn't there and so now since that I sort of make sure that I'm back to sort of focusing on what I need to focus not getting too distracted Mm. yeah it can be difficult we, yeah, we spoke to a footballer who's talking about playing at the new camp in Barcelona and obviously the occasion is something that can, can be completely overwhelming. But it's like he said exactly what you said about how as soon as he got out there, he took the stadium in, but then it was just a case of just focusing on his plan and exactly what he had to do and then it was absolutely fine. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you sort of think about it, whereas now I sort of try and think this just another 400. I've probably run hundreds of 400s, whether it be training or competitions in my lifetime. 
um, that this is just another. It just ha might have a few more people watching it. <laughs> but London, I definitely let the occasion get to me and add such. I didn't perform as I could have done, which is frustrating. And especially in a home crowd, you want to do your best. Yeah, and it seems like the 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 crowd at a relay is always one of the loudest because it's probably one of the most exciting events the olympics but the, the crowd always loves it at, at an olympics loves the relay it's also one of the last events as well so i can imagine yeah. that's that can be quite overwhelming especially as you say in front of a home crowd as well yeah i think the relays are good as well because there's so much going on so there's so much um so you could have a battle out the front for gold and silver but then you could have a battle between four teams for the bronze and then those four teams could become five teams after one changeover. And that, that there's so much chop and changing that I think as well with the relay, especially in four by one as well, because it happens so quickly. And then you think, right, this person in third, and it's like, wait, hold on a second, where have they gone? Oh, shit, they dropped the baton <laughs> two changeovers ago. And I completely missed that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's like the relays are a good one uh, to watch for the crowd, I think. Even for a spectator, like athletes, like we sort of – the relay's on in the main stadium and you've got the warm-up track and everyone is crowded around the main screen at the end of the warm-up track because it's exciting and who knows what earth's going to happen <laughs> because you could you know, the favourites don't necessarily always win. Yes, it's always the one I'm looking out for at the Olympics and I'll certainly be looking out for it at Tokyo as well. Uh, are you training for Tokyo at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So we started our winter training back, I think, start of October, end of September, something like that and trying to sort of keep in the mindset that Tokyo is going to happen next year and just try and keep training as normal as it possibly can be for an Olympic year and try and not change too much. How, how was that period of uncertainty of not knowing what was going to take place and then ultimately how was it hearing the announcement that they'd been postponed? How did you cope with that mentally? Um, I think by the time it got postponed, it was kind of obvious that that was going to happen. I think we, we knew it was going to happen. And that was just sort of like the relief that now, okay, we don't have to worry about trying to find a track when really we're technically not supposed to be leaving the house and all this sort of stuff. Um, the difficult thing was, is not knowing whether there were still going to be races in the summer, um, because obviously you didn't know what was going to happen with COVID or where, where are we going to be allowed to travel, were things going to get worse? Um, so that was difficult in terms of trying to plan um, our training. It, it strikes me that that adaptability is something that you've just got to have as an elite athlete. Like the Tokyo announcement is something you've got to adapt, adapt to. And it must have been the same as the start of your career in London. You know, you hadn't done that length of event that much. And you just had to adapt to being a reserve and getting called up to the team. Yeah. Yeah, we like almost we have to potentially be able to adapt from doing with one focus one day and we could have a completely different focus the next depending on what's happened in those 24 hours whether it be an injury or personal situation or coach situation it could be anything um or olympics cancellation all that sort of stuff that we have to almost be able to just switch do a 180 within a click of a finger kind of thing which is can be tough and that's one thing i think it's sort of like with going back to the Olympic blues and stuff, you're sort of all focusing for the Olympics for so long. Then that happens next day, right? World championships now, and you've just got to change just like that, which can be tough. But there's one thing I think that you have to be definitely have to be able to do quite well as an athlete. Yeah, I think to be an elite athlete, 
these are the sort of mental skills that you need um, to be able to perform at, at the very highest level. And it's something that you're talking to children about at the moment. You haven't been able to do it recently because of COVID. Um, but you, haven't you been going into schools and, and giving talks uh, and motivational talks about how to uh, train your mindset to be an athlete, essentially? Yeah, yeah. I think last year um, and I kind of started it after 2016, after the Olympics, because as many athletes, I had a number of setbacks in the lead, in the lead up to 2016 and the, and the Rio Olympics. And the Rio kind of, the uh, relay in the Olympics and making that team was kind of like a tick in that box and the icing on the cake, or I'd finally achieved this dream that so many people said was never going to happen. So I then kind of like proof that, if you believe in your own abilities and yourself and if you're determined enough and committed enough, then it doesn't matter what all these other people might be saying, might be thinking about you. As long as you still have that belief in yourself and go out there and put in the work, you can still kind of achieve it. And so after that, I wanted, I was like, right, I want to share my story and I want to talk about this because I don't want these kids to potentially be told they're not good enough or they might have dreams of being playing in the Premier League and people might be laughing at them. You want to be like Wayne Rooney, like, yeah, good luck with that kind of thing. And it's like, well, why not? Like, who says that so-and-so from Manchester can't be the next Wayne Rooney or that sort of stuff? And but, so that's what I like enjoy going to do now to sort of share my story, to share the setbacks I have so that if they're struggling or if they're finding themselves in similar setbacks and there's someone personal that they've met that's been through a similar experience mm. um and I sort of take my medals in and all that sort of stuff and the kids seem to enjoy it and like I said I talk about the Olympics from the athlete side of it and not necessarily from what you see on the TV and people are always just amazed at what else goes on um but hopefully we'll be able to get back into schools maybe next year um so I can carry on with my talks. I, I do think that um, a lot of the time when kids are coming through, a lot of emphasis is placed on, you know, who's playing this level at what age and who's going to make it, who isn't. Um, and a lot of the time they should just be encouraged to go on and do what they want to do. So what do you think can be done to encourage kids more just to strive for what they want to achieve? I think it's just keeping them in the sport or keeping them in a sport. It doesn't have to be the sport that they're doing when they're eight. Um, as long as they're still doing a sport up and through through teenage years and up into university, then that's such a big thing and to keep them enjoying it. And it's one thing that I always hate is when like, it's easy to do. Um, but when I hear of teachers giving sport as punishment and I'm like, no, the kids are going to learn to hate sport if you're using it as a form of punishment so it'd be like, oh, you've been, stop chatting, right, get down to give me 10 press-ups. Okay, now you've got to go and do a lap. Because they're, they're going to then learn that they're going to sort of, even subconsciously sort of link press-ups or exercise or fitness to that negative emotion. And that's one thing that I really, like it's easy to do, but um, I really dislike that because of how that could then affect the kid when they're 22 or whatever. Yeah, so true. I've, I've never thought of it that way, but it is so true, isn't it? And there is quite a big drop off of sports participation. Maybe when you get to about 16, 17, loads of kids sort of give up sport, which is a shame. And that 
probably does need to change. And that's probably where your motivational talking going into schools could help because it might inspire some kids to continue playing sport and striving for their goals. With um, that as well, like when I was in year 11, I think it was at school, I, I, I was ranked 40, 40th in the 200 metres in the southwest. Mm. So not even in England or the UK or like I was not one of these like child prodigies that were like winning everything as a kid. Like I wasn't anything special. Um, so I could have easily thought, well, I'm only 40th in the UK as a 16 year old, 40th in the southwest, sorry, as a 16 year old. And, Southwest isn't a big um, region for athletics. Um, so I could have easily thought, well, I'm, why am I even bothering with this? Like, I'm never going to be number one in the UK if I'm nowhere even near being one, number one in the Southwest. So I think it's just a case of carrying on as well and just gradually chipping away at it and knowing that you're not gonna, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, you just have to sort of keep at it and keep sort of hoping that you'll gradually get that improvement. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be said as well for helping coaches and helping adults understand that, you know, their kids might go through a few setbacks and there's right ways to be able to help them deal with that. Because at the end of the day, like an 11 year old kid, he, he won't know much about his long term, like um, potential in the sport. He won't know how to deal with setbacks. There's probably a lot that can be said for helping adults and coaches understand how to deal with that as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, um, when we, when I first was getting part of like the, GB athletics and um, working with Bush athletics gradually going from a junior to a senior we had a psychologist come into us called um, Dr Steve Peters you probably might have heard of him he was psychologist with the British cycling team and stuff and he's written various books and he talked to us about one of the books he'd written about the chimp uh, mind management and like I still refer to that today which is probably about 12 years later and I, talk, and I recommend that to the parents and the coaches because I think understanding that slight change of mindset could be such a big thing on co- and how to like communicate with kids who are struggling with disappointment or setbacks or that sort of stuff. Because um, my, like, my, my, I probably wouldn't mind me saying this, but my dad certainly had finished races before or gone into races and he hasn't necessarily said the best thing that I was would hope for after a disappointment race or that sort of stuff. Um, whereas this book, I think, explains it, the sort of the mind of an athlete after in those first few hours or first 12 hours of a disappointment. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's like, it's hard to know what there's sometimes after disappointment as a kid, not, that whatever a parent said, they're going to be annoyed and is ne- probably never the right sort of thing. But it's just understanding what that kid is going through, I think, is the challenge. I think that, yeah, The Chimp Paradox seems to be one of the se- sort of seminal books in sports psychology. I, I know Alistair Cook uh, referred to it a lot during his career and obviously he's gone to be so successful and we've had it mentioned on this podcast a few times before. Is that something that you were introduced to quite early or is you learning about sports psychology, is that something that's come to you a little bit later? Um, that was probably one of the first things that was introduced to me, like our first psychology session as part of a funded athlete must have been it was either just as I was on the funding program back in 2013 or it was my first time as part of the relay program which was probably 2011 2012 so around those few years um and I think that just hit such a nerve with me because it made me realize that oh that makes sense why I'm thinking this after a race like this or that totally makes sense now 
and then so we had those meetings and then I didn't really do much in terms of sports psychology until about 2015-2016 so a few years later when I was making that transition to 400 and I thought right I need to work on my psychology again a little bit more here um, because there's a bit more to it than just thinking about the chimp. <laughs> and then you, you said that you had a psychologist on board. Um, what sort of things would he help you with and what techniques would he give you to use? So he, like he, he kind of was just someone that I, was, I would speak to. So he'll be like, okay, right, well, what are your goals this year? And I'll be like, oh, well, I'd love to make the relay team in Rio. And he goes, well, why not the individual? And I'll be like, oh, well... <laughs> I didn't think I, I would do it. That'd be amazing, but oh, I don't know if I'm good enough to do that. And he's like, well, why not? Like, why are you not thinking that you're good enough to do the individual at the Olympics? Why are you just like thinking about the relay? So he kind of like worked on improving my comp self confidence, I guess. And then I would talk to him before a race, and I'd talk to him after a race, and we'd kind of like debrief. And if I had I had a bad race, I'd be like, right, okay, what happened? And he kind of like made me be honest with myself and and him and he was an ex-England rugby player so he knew sport and he knew what it took to be the best in the game um, but he wasn't an athlete and I think that is that helped because he didn't I didn't feel like I couldn't say certain things because he was an athlete or he was in the system or all that sort of stuff so I could literally just be completely honest with him and say exactly how it was and he would tell me exactly how it was which I think worked for me so he wasn't like a yes person and was like oh you'll be fine like you'll be better next time like don't worry about it he'll be like no why did you do this like okay you why did you you wanted to run 24.2 seconds for the first hundred so why did you go and run 24.8 and I'd be like, oh, I don't know, I just did it. And he'd be like, well, don't do it next time. And then I was like, okay, well, I didn't do it next time. So I think like we, it kind of worked and his personality and my personality and his background and all that sort of stuff worked really well. Mm. So. And yeah, it's clear, clear there that you set goals for yourself and more often than not, you do go on to achieve them. So what would you say are your goals for the next few years? <sighs> if... COVID aside, <laughs> um, was getting and wanting to make my third Olympics and hopefully come away with a second Olympic medal um, is definitely up there as my main goal. Um, and then the good thing about athletics is we have made the championships every year. So then the following year is another world championships and that's over in Eugene. And I've never been to Eugene before. Um, so that would be an, like having a world championships out in the States will be amazing um and then we've got another home commonwealth games so and winning a medal at a home commonwealth games um would be another like standing on that podium in the in the england kit um i would like to go there and and be pushing for a medal i think in the individual as well as the relay um so they're sort of the next three years it's hard to plan too far ahead because a sport anything can happen but um yeah going all the way to the Commonwealth Games and coming back with a medal from a home home champs there I think would be pretty cool yeah it sounds like you've got a pretty great three years mapped out and hopefully the Olympics goes ahead and hopefully there might even be some fans there because it, it would be great to see um, yeah <laughs> yeah quite you just have to hope <laughs> keep everything crossed <laughs>
really great to hear about your journey and, and all the stuff you're doing at the moment as well and inspiring kids so, yeah. yeah thanks so much for doing this as well really appreciate no it no worries my pleasure are you getting um a break now before christmas or i get christmas day and boxing day off is that it wow yeah. <laughs> lucky <Yeah>. you <laughs> i know and that's nice the coach is like oh you'll be able to train on boxing day i was like oh the track's shut are <laughs> so, you allowed to like eat what you want and drink what you want on christmas day or do you have to be careful i mean we can kind of do what we want but, but just to a certain extent i yeah. wouldn't go crazy um Sometimes I've had like very like tough sessions on like 27th of December. So I'm like kind of in the back of my mind thinking I've got this session to do in two days. So I don't want to be eating all this sugar or alcohol or whatever in preparation for that. So yeah, I, it was, I may, might get to experience a, enjoy a proper Christmas one day, <laughs> but I literally don't have to yeah. worry at all about what I'm eating or drinking. Save your enjoyable christmases for retirement um, it'll be m- way better then anyway yeah exactly <laughs> go crazy then <laughs> all right well thank you so much no worries ha- have um, a great christmas and uh, yeah, yeah we'll- i hope you guys have a good one too bye cheers bye. i found that really fascinating and i enjoyed hearing about the intricacies and the psychological challenges of sprinting which I didn't really know that much about before. And I think some people who don't understand athletics might just see sprinting as a case of running as fast as you can around a lap. But I enjoyed learning that there's way more to it than that. I mean, Emily has so much to think about during a race and there's so many mental battles going on during the 50 or so seconds it takes to get around the track. But what else really struck me was the unwavering dedication Emily has for her craft. And since she took up athletics as a teenager, she's had to make so many sacrifices. But ultimately, it was all worth it when she was stood on the podium in Rio de Janeiro at the Olympic Games with a bronze medal hanging around her neck. For me, I think what stood out from our chat with Emily there was how she really does feel that people, if they can be taught to have some self-belief, they can go on to do whatever they want to achieve. She was saying she wasn't ranked particularly highly in terms of sprinters in the country when she was at senior school. And a lot of people would see that as demotivating, but she has gone on to win Olympic medals and world championships. And is real proof that you should always carry on striving for your goals. That unrelenting dedication to get where she got to is really admirable. And I think it's so good that she's using her lessons and her experiences to teach the next generation of athletes.